Our first reading is from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. can be found on page 543 in the Black Bibles. Proverbs chapter 3, from verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. The second reading comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, which can be found on page 1045 or page 34 of your booklets. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means, means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, it's nice to see you. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. Why don't you take a moment uh, by yourself, uh, come before you, God, and just prepare your hearts and minds to hear his word tonight. Heavenly Father, you are all loving so very kind and gracious and full of mercy. 
And Father, you promise when your word goes out, it will not return empty. And Father, your word refreshes us and nourishes us and feeds us, encourages us. And I pray by the work of your spirit tonight, you do just that in every one of us. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. It was 1995, and I was kayaking in New Zealand. And I made the, the very simple boating error. I had one foot here on the bank, and I had one foot in the kayak, just, I reckon, about two seconds too long, and it ended in utter disaster. You know that, don't you? That you can't have one foot on the bank and one foot in the boat for too long. It always, always, always ends in disaster. Now, we know that truth about boating, but when we come to our walk with the Lord, we often think we can do just that. We think we can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We think we can be friends with the world and friends with God. We can love God and love the world. But trust me, it always, always, always ends in disaster. I was speaking at a conference in New Zealand earlier this year, and in, in the shower block, there was this, this great notice, very subtle. It said, caution, hot water is very hot. And it was. I turned on the hot water and I screamed. As I turned on the cold water and I screamed again because it was too cold. And then I found this nice blend, bit of hot bit of cold and it was just lovely. It was warm, it was cuddly and I stood in the shower and it felt so comfortable. And again, we do that with our Christian lives, don't we? Not too hot, not too cold. Oh, we're Christian, but not too Christian. What we really like is that nice, comfortable, warm, squidgy Christianity. I don't know about you, but Jesus didn't call me to live a comfortable life. He called me to live a cross-centered life. I don't know what Bible you're reading from, but in my Bible, Jesus says, if anyone would deny him, would come after me, he didn't say, you must have a nice blend of the world and a nice blend of the church and just live a nice, comfortable life. He says, no, no deny yourself and follow me. In my Bible, Jesus said, you can... Be in the world, but don't be of the world. And James says the same thing tonight in this chapter. He's very black and white. He says, you're either friends with God or friends with the world. And you just cannot blend those two together. Because if you're friends with the world, before long you'll become an enemy of God. I want to start this sermon tonight thinking about our relationship. My relationship and your relationship with God. So how would you finish this sentence? It's on the screen. God is our. What would you put next? God is our creator. That's a glorious truth. He is the almighty creator. We're his creatures. God is our king, the, the righteous, just king of the universe. God is our, our shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? He cares for us. He knows us. God is our rock, God is our refuge, God is our redeemer, God is our provider, God is our protector, God is our fortress, God is our saviour. What would you put in that sentence? God is our. 
See, whatever word you put next actually shapes the way that you relate to him. And tonight from James 4, I want to think about an incredible relationship that we have with God, but we often forget it. It's there in the first three words of verse 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. One of the key verses of this letter. He says, you adulterous people. Literally, adulteresses. That's a shock, isn't it? Because throughout this whole letter, he's talked about my dear brothers and sisters, my beloved ones. It's a warm pastoral letter. And now James looks at the church, looks at me, looks at you, and says, you adulterous people. And he's not talking about sex. He's talking about our relationship with God. Because here's the mind-blowing truth. You may never realize this. You ready for it? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus, then God is your husband. Isn't that extraordinary? Whether you're single here or married here, whether you are widowed, divorced, male or female, if you're in Christ, we are married to God. God has committed himself to us in this forsaking all others, beautiful, exclusive, loyal love relationship. God loves you. He's committed himself to you. That's the metaphor used throughout the Bible. God is the husband and we are his bride. Isaiah 54 verse 4 says this, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. At Jeremiah 2 verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. Ephesians 5, the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the bridegroom. Or, or that great wedding feast in heaven in Revelation 21 where we, we, we're going to meet our groom, we're going to see our husband face to face. Do you get it? God has committed himself to us, to his church, to you and to me in this covenantal relationship. He longs for that beautiful, intimate, exclusive, forsaking all others relationship. And I really want you to grasp tonight that intimacy that you have with God. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much he cherishes you and is committed to you? What's the basis of a healthy human marriage? A healthy human marriage, you need commitment and you need communication and you need intimacy and you need love. Same with God. An exclusive, loyal, committed, faithful, obedient, intimate relationship with God as our husband. And I do think if we understood this more, if we just grasped God's faithful love to us, then we'd sense the weight and feel the heartbreak that God feels every time we flirt with the world. Every time we flirt with the world, every time we wander from the truth, it's like we're committing spiritual adultery. We've been unfaithful to him. And it breaks God's heart. That's why he says in verse 4, you adulterous people. You're breaking God's heart. 
Jeremiah says this, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. He's saying, it's like you're having love affairs with the world and you're breaking your marriage vows to God every day. And I know that we live in this world and I know we're bombarded with this world. It's so enticing and it's so persuasive. It's like that drip, drip, drip effect. And James says, yes, you live in the world, but you cannot be friends with the world. See the word he used in verse 4? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? He chooses that word friendship deliberately because uh, friendships are people that you hang out with and friendships are people who influence you and friends shape your thinking. And James says, if you hang out with the world and if you allow the world to influence you and shape your thinking, then you become an enemy of God. You choose. Do you want to be friends with the world or enjoy this intimate, loving relationship with God? Remember that uh, famous interview that uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, did a number of years ago now when She's talking about her marriage to Charles, and she said, the problem in our marriage, there were, there, were, there were three of us in our marriage, Charles, Diana, and Camilla. And three in a marriage never works. Same with God. You, God, and the world never works. According to verse four, we become an enemy of God. Do you see that? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's that long, slow, gradual drift away from God and you're more entwined in the world. And again, I I do see it again and again and again and again. I hope you know that in, in human marriage, most affairs, most adultery, it, it doesn't happen suddenly. It's all those little choices that you make. Long, slow drift before you commit adultery. Same with God. All those little tiny decisions that we make. Sport or church. Facebook or Bible. Me or others. And the more we listen to the world and are seduced by its empty promises, that long, gradual Drift happens, and before you know it, you are so far from God. And I could, I could list name after name after name of people where this is true. You know, ben, who loved the women of the world, and so he's no longer calling himself a Christian, and Grace, who loved the security of this world, and she's wandered from God, and name after name after name. And I don't think the issue was for these people, the world was so attractive. I think we don't really grasp this exclusive, intimate love relationship with God. Because if we did, if, we, if you understood how committed God is to you and how much he loves you and how much he cherishes you as a child of God, then the world would not be so attractive. Extraordinary verse in verse 5, it says that God is jealous for us. With that right positive jealousy he says do you think that scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us 
Well, if you look at the footnote, it's a bit better. The, the spirit he caused to dwell in us envies intensely. Because <laughs> you know when you put your trust in Christ and you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, that, that God gives you his spirit and your spirit dwells in you. And so God is living in you and you're flirting with the world and he's jealous of that. He's rightly jealous. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. God cares because like a husband, he's heartbroken. He longs for that total allegiance and total commitment. I, I, it blows my mind that God would be jealous for me. It blows my mind that God would love me in that, that steadfast, loyal way. But he does. Have you grasped that? Do you know how much God really loves you? See, secondly, the rebellion. Why do we stuff up? Why do we sin? Why is this world so attractive? Why? The answer is our selfish desires. Me, myself, and I. Look at verse 1. What, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You're supposed to be Christians. You're supposed to be brothers and sisters in church. Why are you fighting? And the answer is, don't, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word for desire in verse 1 is the word hedonism or pleasure. It's a pleasure that's centered on me, self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-importance, self-satisfaction, me, 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 me. Earlier this year, I met with a couple who I had the privilege of, of conducting their marriage last year. And they came to show me their wedding photos. They were beautiful wedding photos. And after they'd gone, I, I realized that every single photo they showed me, the first person I looked out for was me. <laughs> Where was I in the photo? Did, did I look good in that photo? Maybe it's just my vanity, I don't know. But we're all wild like that. All about me, as long as I'm happy. James says in verse 2, you desire but you don't have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you, you quarrel and you fight. He's a, he's a great preacher, he says the same thing twice. He says you, you desire something, you want something, but those desires are unfulfilled, you don't get what you want. But the desire is still there and it's battling away inside of you, getting more and more and more frustrated, and so you kill, verse 2, not literally, but you there's anger in your heart, anger at God for not giving you what you want and anger at other people. You covet, so there's something that someone else has that you really want. But you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You ever seen two three-year-olds fighting over a toy? I want it. Give it to me now. If they don't get it, a three-year-old will just stand there and scream. Or he might grab the toy and hit the other person with it, or kick and scream. But we'd never do that because we're just grown-ups. We're sort of more sophisticated. When we don't get what we want, we sulk. Or manipulate. Or get angry. Because deep down, we are full of self. James says, why do you fight in church? Why are you bickering and quarreling and the answer is me what about me it isn't fair we say that's how the world thinks says James the world puts the center 
of all things being self. And being a friend of the world will mean endless broken relationships and endless quarrelling and fighting and slandering and factions and criticism. And, and James said it shouldn't be like that. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, church, do not slander one another. Stop speaking badly about each other. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or, or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. You know, when we speak against somebody and we slander somebody and we gossip and we abuse them, we're actually hurting God. Actually, James says you're claiming to be God. Do you see that? He says when you judge the law, God's good law, his royal law that brings freedom, when you stand over the law and think you're better than God, you're not keeping the law, you're sitting in judgment on it, saying that you know better than God. He says in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. It's not me, it's not you. God is the lawgiver and God is the judge. So who are you to judge your neighbour? So that's the problem when we put ourselves at the centre of everything. We stand over other people and we judge them and we bicker and we fight. It's not right, is it? It also impacts your prayer life, you know. Like any marriage relationship, if you know that you're loved by God, you've got to talk to him, you've got to listen to him, spend time with him. And James says in the end of, chapter, end of verse 2 of chapter 4, you don't have because you don't ask God. You fail to get on your knees and talk to your husband, talk to the one who loves you, who is all-powerful, who knows you intimately and can provide, but you're so self-sufficient, aren't you? Maybe it is self-sufficiency, maybe it is just worldliness because you know, sometimes the things that we desire or the things that we want, we feel so stupid asking God for because they're so worldly. When was the last time you prayed? Oh, uh, dear God, please give me a great gift of music or a great gift of preaching or, or really good looks so that I can be important in church. You would never pray that because it sounds so worldly. Dear God, I'm in love with my best friend's wife, so could you powerfully intervene so that we can have an affair and no one can find out about it? You never pray that. See, your prayers will show whether you're a friend of the world or a friend of God. What do you really desire in life? Is it God and his glory and his fame? Or is it all about you and your, your wants and your desires? And when you ask verse 3, God doesn't give what you want because you ask with the wrong motives. It's all about you. We spend what you get on your pleasures. God hears our prayers. Our prayers don't fall on deaf ears, but the answer is no because it's all selfish. Isn't that tragic? God loves us and God has committed himself to us, but we put ourselves at the centre of everything. So, what's the right response? And this is so beautiful. It says, humility before a very gracious God. That's all God asks of you. To come to him with humility. To get on your knees before him as your husband. To trust him, to love him, to obey him. Look at verse 6. But he, that is God, gives us more grace. 
That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour or literally gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Put yourself under his care. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn and wail. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and the promise is he will lift you up like a husband who only wants best for his wife. He, God wants, wants what's best for us, so humble yourself before him. I hope you know that humility is a beautiful, beautiful virtue. It's just recognizing that God is God and you are not. It's saying life's about God and his glory, not me and my glory. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Augustine said, if you plan to build a tall tower of virtues, you must first lay down a deep foundation of humility. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. So humble yourselves before God. How do you do that? Trust him. Recognize he is God and you're not. Verse 7, resist the devil. Say no to the prince of this world. You won't stop being friends of this world until you learn to resist the prince of this world. Say no to Satan, say no to his temptations and his influence and his whisperings. Someone said the greatest trick the devil's ever played is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. He does exist. According to the scriptures, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for Christians to devour. And I don't know about you, but he does that in my life all the time. As I'm trying to live for God, there's a devil whispering in my ear. Does God really care? Is God really good? Go on, Paul. God won't mind if you just flirt with the world a bit. And James says, resist him. Say no to him. There's a great line in the song that I love. It says, uh, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Christ there who made an end to all my sin. And I need to keep reminding myself of that. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Because at the cross, at the cross of Christ, the devil was defeated, wasn't he? Made a public, public spectacle of So if I'm in Christ, he has no power over me. Yeah, he's a lion, but he's a a toothless lion. He's a gummy lion. I am free from his accusations. I'm free from his whisperings. He has no power over me anymore. Because greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and so do you if you're a Christian. So you can resist the devil. And I love the promise in verse 7. When you resist him, he will flee from you. It's a brilliant picture of this this lion who is so scared. And so he runs off into the distance. That's the promise. And then the invitation of verse verse 8. Come near to God. Literally come back to God. A wanderer, come home. 
When you realise you're flirting with the world, when you realise that you, the world is so attractive, you come back to God, you put God back at the centre. I think verse 8 is actually an example of the prodigal son. Do you know that story that Jesus told of the, the boy who became a friend of the world? He squandered everything, didn't he? Lived the good life, partying, drinking, doing all the world promised. And he found it to be empty. He found it to be shallow and futile. And one day he woke up and said, I need to go home. I'm going to go back to my dad and just say sorry. And if you know the story that Jesus tells, the, the prodigal son gets up to go home, but he doesn't make it home, does he? Because before he gets home, the father has come near to him and come out to greet him and welcome him home. That's the promise of verse 8. Come near to God. Come back to God. Wake up. Come back to God. And God will come near to you in that intimate, loving embrace. It involves repentance, verse 8. Now wash your hands and purify your hearts. Your whole being needs to recognize that you've offended God. Like the prodigal who said, Father, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. We recognize how much our flirting has hurt our husband. We recognize that our, our behavior was inappropriate. And so we wash our hands, we purify our hearts, we, we say to God, I am so sorry, God. And we grieve and we mourn and we wail, verse 9. That's, that's the language of the prophets. The people who knew that they had so offended and sinned against their holy God, how wretched they were. And James says, change your laughter to mourning. All the things of this world that used to make you laugh, they don't anymore because God is now at the centre. And all the things that used to bring you joy, you know, the, the money, the drinking, the holidays, they don't anymore because God's back at the centre. And then you humble yourself before the Lord and you come back to him. And what's the promise of verse 10? It's so lovely, isn't it? He will lift you up. He will hold you up. He will keep you up. He will keep on forgiving you again and again and again and again and again. Love that about God. When you come back to him, he doesn't rub your face in it. He doesn't say, well, thanks for coming home. Now go and earn your, earn your forgiveness. He just embraces us. He lifts us up. And what's the promise of verse six? He gives us more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. For those who are interested, I don't have any tattoos. But if I did have a tattoo, James 4 verse 6 is right up there. God gives us more grace, more undeserved favor, more undeserved love, and more undeserved forgiveness than you could ever imagine. No matter how much you've flirted with the world, no matter how much you've wandered, it's grace upon grace upon grace. Costly, isn't it? Costly grace that sent his own son to an old wooden cross. Because he's done it, because he loves us. And I think we get that we're saved by grace, but 
Do you grasp that every hour of every day, what you need is grace upon grace upon grace? I love this quote by Max Licardo. He says, our saviour kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. But rather than recall in horror, he reaches out in kindness and he says, I can clean that if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palmful of mercy, he washes our sins and causes his beloved. If God does promise to give grace to the humble, all he asks us to do is humble ourselves before him again. If you grasp that God loves you, he cherishes you, he keeps you, he holds you, he protects you, he guides you. Every time you fall, every time you stumble, every time you flirt with the world, just humble yourself before God and come back to him. You may be here tonight and you've realised that you've wandered a long way from God and you're flirting with the world. Can I beg you and encourage you tonight to come home Come back to your God, know that he loves you, know that he forgives you with arms wide open. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never understood who Jesus is and what it means for God to love you. Ask somebody, investigate. Maybe you're here tonight and the Lord has convicted you of just one little way that the world has become so attracted to you. Write that down on your, on your, car, on your seats as a commitment card tonight. Grab that out. Just spend a moment reflecting on what the Spirit is teaching you tonight. Write your name, tick a box, give us something to pray for. I just want to remind you as I close tonight, God cherishes you with a steadfast love. So please stop wandering and his grace really is more than enough.